American soccer fans, welcome to episode 113 of the USA Soccer Cast. We are bringing you everything about the U.S. national teams, the players, the leagues, and everything else that impacts the game of soccer in these United States. I'm Donald Wine. It is Tuesday, August 15th, 2023, and it has been a minute. It's been a long, busy summer. We had the Nations League, we had the Gold Cup, and then we had the Women's World Cup, which concludes this weekend. We're going to focus on a post-mortem of the Women's World Cup, focusing in on how the United States did, what happened, and later on, we'll answer some listener questions about the Women's World Cup and the future of the Women's National Team program. Let me first start by saying that I got to attend the Women's World Cup. I just got back from Australia earlier this week. It is hard to catch up with sleep, and that's what I've kind of been doing over the last few days as I kind of collect my thoughts and gather myself uh, and kind of reintegrate back into Eastern time here in Washington, D.C. But uh, I got to go over uh, for a couple of weeks. I attended the Netherlands match in Wellington, the Portugal match in Auckland, and the round of 16 match against Sweden and Melbourne. We'll talk about the games in a minute, but first I just want to discuss being in New Zealand and Australia for the Women's World Cup. It was my third Women's World Cup that I've attended. I also went to Canada and I was there for the entirety of the tournament in France. And I had been to Australia before, but New Zealand was one of those bucket list countries for me. I'd never been there. And to get to Wellington, it took me 47 hours. I left D.C. at 4 a.m. on Monday, July 24th. And I arrived at the night before party for the American Outlaws in Wellington on Wednesday night at around 8 p.m. Now, that was 8 p.m. Auckland time, which was just about 4 a.m. on the East Coast on Wednesday morning. And yeah, 47 hours, D.C. to Baltimore, Baltimore to L.A., L.A. to Sydney, Sydney to Auckland, Auckland to Wellington. Do not recommend you do that. I would recommend you kind of cut it down to maybe one or two stops. Um, You're going to have to stop once for most of you in the United States to get to Australia or New Zealand, but it was a long trip to get there, but it was well worth it. You know, Wellington is a beautiful, beautiful city. I didn't get to spend a lot of time there because I was only there for the Netherlands match before I went back to Auckland, but uh, absolutely breathtaking views. A lot of people who spent a couple days in Wellington Absolutely loved it. They went to a couple of games at Sky Stadium. I got to go to the one. I went back to Auckland after that game, was there for the better part of a week, was able to experience Norway versus the Philippines, raucous atmosphere at Eden Park, and then also a couple days later, the USA-Portugal game that was also at Eden Park, but also getting to take in a lot more of the sites at uh, in Auckland, you know, going to uh, the Central Business District and kind of walking around the city. Um, very hilly city, so got a lot of steps in, a lot of exercise. Uh, going to the Fan Fest that was at Auckland at the Cloud, which is kind of one of the piers uh, there on the water. Very, very cool. It's a small venue, but at least very, very cool to go and watch some games, take in the sights, do a little shopping. You know, all the bars that I went to, all the restaurants that I went to, they all were showing games. And that's kind of something that you didn't really see even in France. You didn't see it in Canada. That They were very well aware that the Women's World Cup was in their country and that they're the hosts. And they were very proud of that. And while you may not have seen a lot of people go out to the games in New Zealand because of the, you know, the length and distance it took to get there, 
they were very active in watching the games in the cities. All the bars were packed. Every TV was on the games. If you walked into a, a bar and they, they weren't showing the games, you asked for it, they would put it on. And I think that's a, a, a stark departure from previous Women's World Cups where sometimes you had to go to a couple of places before you found one that would show you the games. And Australia is a little bit different because most of their games were featured on Optus Sport, which is kind of like their Paramount Plus, a streaming service. And obviously people were able to get access to it uh, when they went over. But it was harder to find bars that were showing every single game. Now, there were some bars that were showing every single game. The Fan Fests were also a lot bigger as a result. And you were able to see games, uh, all the games there. But it was a little bit more challenging if you were just kind of in your hotel room to flip on a game. Whereas in New Zealand, they were showing reruns all the time. They were showing netball, rugby, you know, cricket all day long. So you could watch sports all day in New Zealand if you wanted to, including rewatching some of the World Cup games that may have been later at night. So I really enjoyed New Zealand. Of course, I loved Australia. Melbourne is one of my favorite cities in the world, game notwithstanding. A great, great city that you all need to take in. So um, that was a brief thing about being at the World Cup. And obviously, there's a lot that I can talk about the Women's World Cup, about being there and being a part of the action. But let's get to the match results, because that's going to feed a lot into some of the questions that we have after the break. First off, the United States opened up their World Cup against Vietnam. They were in Group E, and they were in Group E alongside Vietnam, the Netherlands, and Portugal. So they began with Vietnam. 3 nothing victory for the United States. Sophia Smith with a brace. Lindsey Horan adding a third goal in the second half. But they, while it was a solid victory, it wasn't where they were fully sharp. And you know, looking back, a lot of people probably could say, hey, that might have been the moment where people should have been saying, hey, there's something off here. But it was the first game. A lot of new players. You know, it's it's hard to start off the World Cup with a victory. And especially when you think back to four years ago when they beat Thailand 13 and nothing, you know, people were upset at how many goals they scored. And now people are upset at the number of goals they didn't score against Vietnam because they kind of a lot of people incorrectly saw Vietnam and Thailand as similar teams that should have yielded similar results with a different team. And that's just not fair to the women's national team, but they didn't look sharp. They there's it was hard to pinpoint what was going on, but yes, Sophia Smith played very well. Lindsay Horan played very well, but it was hard to get passes together. It was hard. It was, it seemed very difficult for them to finish chances and it just seemed like they were a little bit out of sorts and still trying to put it together. And that all made sense at the time because everyone kind of looked out of sorts. Every team. Not a lot of buildup to this World Cup. I mean, teams, uh, some teams got together for camps, but they didn't really play, but maybe one or two friendlies to lead up to this World Cup. There was no window in June as there, or right before the World Cup as there was in 2019 and 2015. So it was a little bit more difficult for teams to really get ready. So they you, you come out of there and you're still like, hey, if we get a result against the Netherlands, we're still in great shape to win the group and move on to Sydney. And this is where I showed up for the Wellington game on July 27th in, against the Netherlands, a 1-1 draw. Now, the U.S. at this point, they had led you know the entirety of the game against Vietnam. 
but they had to fight to come back from behind in this one against the Netherlands after Joe Rude scored in the 17th minute. Lindsay Horan equalizes in the 62nd minute. But the issue with this game was that the United States absolutely could have won this game if they had done one thing, and that is utilize their bench. Roosevelt comes on for Savannah DeMello at halftime, but she is the only sub that is used by head coach Vlad- Vlako Andonovsky, and it's inexplicable still why we never used any subs in the second half because the U.S. was pressing so much in the second half and getting behind the defense and getting chances to score, but all the players were tired. And at a certain point, you got to bring on fresh legs. And I think fresh legs, you know, with with new energy in the form of maybe a Lynn Williams or an Alyssa Thompson could have pressured the Netherlands defense making more mistakes and the U.S. could have capitalized on them. But they didn't. It was 1-1. That was the final score. And even still after that, while you question some of the tactics, you question some of the personnel decisions or lack thereof, you're able to come away from that and say, hey, if we're still in first place in the group, if we take care of business against Portugal, we're still in the round of 16 and we are winning this group, you know, provided that the Netherlands doesn't go off against Vietnam. So we get to the third match. And the third match is back in Auckland at Eden Park, which is where the Vietnam game was. And that's where the U.S. had their base camp. Everything is very familiar to them. All the logistics are familiar to them. All they had to do is go out and produce. And this might have been the one of the worst performances we have seen from a U.S. women's national team in a long time in which they didn't lose the game. But they almost lost the game. A 0-0 draw where they really didn't have anything going for them. Portugal in the last few minutes of the game definitely put some pressure on the United States. And I think it was the 86th or 87th minute. They hit the goalpost. Portugal was maybe a few inches away from sending the U.S. crashing out of the World Cup in the group stage. But the goalpost was kind that day. And it sent the ball ricocheted 30 yards the other way. And the U.S. ends up drawing that game 0-0. A very, you know, again, not a great performance. They miss out on winning the group for just the second time in Women's World Cup history. And... Because of that, instead of going to Sydney as the group winners to face South Africa, they now head to Melbourne to face Sweden. Sweden, the number three team in the world, death taxes facing Sweden in the Women's World Cup. Those three things appear to be certain because at every World Cup but two, the United States women's national team and Sweden have faced off in, in during the tournament. And it's almost like the gods lined us up to kind of make this happen one more time. And this is where a lot of people said, Hey, this is going to be a very difficult game. Again, number one versus number three in the world. Sweden had been performing super well during the group stage. They won all their matches. One of three teams to win all their matches, the others being England and Japan. And, the U.S. had to come correct. They had to play a much better game than they had at any point during the World Cup. And those that's very difficult to do. But as we saw in that game, 
that's what the U.S. did. They played a terrific game. Let me tell you from the stands, let me tell you how it felt to us. This was such a great performance by the United States in so many ways. They dominated the game in almost every category. They dominated the actual game. They dominated extra time. They dominated penalties. They hit the post four times during the game. They hit the post another couple of times in extra time. The opposing keeper had to stop 11 shots during the match. But in penalties, this game goes all the way to penalties. Musevich does not stop a single shot in penalties. Not a single shot. Alyssa Nayer, on the other hand, not only stopped the penalty, she made one. She became the first goalkeeper, man or woman, in World Cup history to convert a penalty. We had two chances to win with one kick in penalties, and we still lost the game. In a in a trillion scenarios, you couldn't have thought that up. With all the stats and all the just how the possession, number of passes created, number of you know, XG, all the all the metrics and, and stats you want. Everything skewed towards the United States, except at the end of the game, by literally one millimeter, the U.S. was going home and Sweden was moving on. I mean, when you go back to the penalties, you know, the easy answer is to say that, hey, the U.S. missed three. They missed three penalties. Mega Rapino skied it. Sophia Smith pushed hers right. And Kelly O'Hara hit the right post. Again, the post was very kind to us against Portugal. It was not so kind against Sweden and the run ends in the round of 16 It's the earliest exit by the U S women's national team in any major tournament. And it's the first time they failed to to make to the semifinals in a women's world cup. Just once in the Olympics had they failed to make it past the quarters, but this was far and away the earliest exit by the U S women's national team in a major tournament. So unfortunately the run ends here we're still talking about this in the middle of the world cup and we should be, you know, either talking about them playing in the semifinal, maybe playing in a third place match, maybe playing in the final, but instead this is a post-mortem episode. And that's something that's very brand new to a lot of people. Now, of course they still have games to play after this. They have matches coming up next month against South Africa, who also made the round of 16 and lost to the Netherlands. The U.S. women's national team will also have match windows in October and November. The date, location, and opponent for those matches have yet to be determined. And there's going to be some changes. At at the end of the day, Megan Rapinoe has announced that this is going to be her final season playing soccer. We're going to, at some point, see the final match of her career. Julie Ertz, in an emotional interview after the Sweden game, all the players were emotional, but no, no, very few more so than Julie Ertz, she basically announced that that was her last game. And with some of the other players that have been around for ages, they are legends for not just U.S. soccer, but for all of soccer. Some of them are going to have to make the decision on whether or not they're going to continue with this program and when that exit might be. U.S. soccer is evaluating the program as we speak. Will they make a coaching change? Will they make a GM change? Will they you know, bring in new personnel. There's a lot of questions that need to be answered. And in a way, this is not to equate exiting out of the round of 16 of the World Cup to 
what happened in Trinidad in 2017. But this is as close as the U.S. women's national team has ever gotten to that. This is not a hard reset, but they definitely need to have a hard reevaluation of everything. They, at this point, are kind of like, and I mentioned this on uh, on the World of CONCACAF podcast, which is coming out very soon. We have a post-mortem episode about the World Cup. And I equated it to Bama football, Alabama football. You know, they're going for national championships every single time. And when they don't win one, they kind of have a reset. It's not a hard reset where, you know, for your computer, where you kind of take it and throw it out the window and get a new computer. But they do have to update the update the software. They do have to update some of the personnel. They have to reevaluate what they're doing to get back to the top. And that's where the U.S. Women's National Team program is at right now. They need to figure out what they need to do to get back to the top. They're not dropping from one to 10 in the world or anything like that, but they need to figure out how to get back to number one. It's it, there's no doubt that they will not be the number one team in the world when the new rankings come out. And when that happens, they need to understand that they have to figure out what they need to do to get back to the top. And that is includes an evaluation of all areas of the program. And so we will see how that develops over the next coming weeks and whether some changes will be made quickly or if they wait till the fall or, you know, we're entering another cycle that starts with the Olympics next summer, which they are in. They need to be prepared for that as well. So there's no rest for the weary. But at the end of the day, they need to figure out how to get back to the top. And that evaluation starts right now. So let's take a break. On the other side, we will get into your questions from the mailbag. So stick around. back and as i mentioned before the break we are dipping into the mailbag we solicited questions from our listening audience most of them deal with the women's world cup so we'll start with those questions to continue the discussion that we had about the fallout from the women's national team losing in the round of 16 and what's next for the program and i begin with a question from my best friend jeff shealy and jeff writes injuries were obviously very costly for us in this women's world cup if you could add one injured player to the squad at full strength, who would you pick? And for me, it's super simple. It's Katarina Macario. If she is on this team, we have a much different lineup. She's probably starting at the false nine. Alex Morgan is probably sit- sitting on the bench and not trying to play a role that Katarina Macario was built to play and how this team kind of was shaped. And I feel like the results are different, especially up front. We get more goals created and we obviously finish some of those chances with Katarina Mercario. And also it's just that she's so dynamic. She, I mean, she has the potential to be the greatest player in the world. And if she's on this team at full strength, God be with every other opponent, because I feel like the results would have been a lot different and she would have made a breakout name for herself by the end of this. So that would be who I would have picked. Most definitely, Katarina Macario. Uh, my my buddy Andres writes: Will September friendlies be a continuation of the World Cup, or will it be a way to look forward? And Andres, I think it should be a way to look forward, but it's going to depend on a lot of things. Megan Rapinoe, as I mentioned, she's going to have a send off at some point. Could we see some other players bow out? Maybe announce that they're retiring 
uh, from the national team, at least, and trying to get that swan song. Will there be a new coach? Will there be a new GM? I mean, there's a lot of questions to to answer there. I think we're going to see a little bit of both. Yeah, sure. We'll probably get some new players into the system and, and players that didn't make this World Cup roster. You will see in September because there's no pressure to bring the 23 because it's not a victory tour. It's just a summer, a fall series of, of games. And now you can bring in some players for evaluation. But I do think that there are there is the the tendency for U.S. soccer to bring in the same players because they're, you know, household names. They just went to a World Cup. So those are the players that a lot of fans want to see normally. And, and I think there's just going to be uh, again, it depends on who the coach is. If if they're if Flacco is still coaching, if there's an interim or if there's a brand new coach, I think that determines how this plays along but i think you're looking at a little mix of both it will be a continuation of the world cup in some ways and then in some ways will be to start evaluating towards the olympics which again are less than a year away jonathan slate who is my buddy and also co-host of the world of podcast he asks what would you change about the women's national team program moving forward and i think this is an interesting question because i think one of the answers that i have is Seems simple, but it also would be kind of a fundamental change. I'd have the team play on the road more often. Simple as that. If you're not getting some of the best teams to come to the United States, which has happened in the last couple of years for various reasons, then go to them. We're one of the few women's national teams in the world that doesn't have to stay in one place to play the same team twice. We have to deal with that all the time. If you think about the women's national team windows, very rarely do we see a window where the team is playing two times against two different teams is usually the same team coming in to play us in two different cities. And then they go home and it's a way for them to cut down on expenses. We don't have to worry about that. We can send our women's national team to play in Sweden and Korea. Like we can do that if we wanted to um, FIFA rules, notwithstanding, but we can go to two different places, two different cities and play matches against two different teams if we wanted to. And I think we should, I think, that keeps us focused. It's clear we don't play well on the road, and that has been clear. I mean, even in the W Championship, we kind of struggled at times in Mexico. Um, playing in New Zealand, we yeah, we beat New Zealand pretty bad, but it wasn't a sharp, sharp you know match in either instance. Going to the Netherlands, we beat them, but it wasn't sharp. Going to Sweden, we drew them. Again, wasn't sharp. Going to play more of these teams. And, and again, I was in England and Spain in October, where again, we played two different teams, two different cities in the same window, lost both games. A lot of outside factors during that particular window that I'm, you know, that I'm willing to give grace towards. But the idea is putting them in those situations where they are not the darlings of the team in the stadium. Right. They're they're not going to outshine the home team in any stadium you go to. So they need to play more of those games. And a way to do that, I don't know if it's, you know, trying to figure out a way to do it in January. I don't know if it's trying to figure out a way to do it during the year, maybe November, uh, kind of like a Thanksgiving, like during the the window there. But I would have the team play on the road more often and get that test. South America, go to Africa, go to Asia go to Europe, go to every confederation. We should be visiting every confederation at least once during 
a a four year cycle. And I think the men should be doing that too. The women, especially just at least once in every confederation hit the road and play somebody in their house because the world cup is not necessarily going to be in the United States all the time. And if you continue to play as if it's going to be in the United States, we are going to be disappointed every single time because those teams are also getting that experience, especially when they come here to play us. So slate, thank you for that question. My buddy, Doug Reyes Ceron, he asks, do we start integrating a new swath of players in these new friendlies or is 2023 more or less a farewell tour for the parting vets? And I kind of answered that earlier, uh, but we should be starting to integrate some new players and, you know, not just players that didn't make this roster, but have been kind of integrated like the Taylor Corniaks, the, you know, Carson Pickett's. Um, Haley Mace, you know, uh, Jalen Howell, those type of players, but get me official in there, right? A player that has not had a cap, get some of the younger players in there. Jaden Shaw, get her in the camp, see what she can do. This is the time for competition. This is not the time to say, Hey, we have our players and we're going to kind of go through with them. I want players to get integrated into the system that are going to factor in four years from now as well. It's not about just the Olympics. At this point, yeah, the Olympics are a priority, but they're not the only priority. And at the end of the day, we can't put all our nuts in one basket and say, hey, we're just going to see if we can ride this train and maybe regroup for the Olympics. We need to have a situation where we have younger players pushing to get on this team and making it where whoever the next coach is can't leave them out of the lineup. That's what I want to see. But to do that, you need to give them opportunities to field that competition. You don't know if the, if me official is ready for the international stage, for example. You won't know until you play her. You won't know until you bring her into camp. And we have plenty of opportunities to bring some of these players into camp to see what they can do, put them on the field against great competition to see what they can do. And I hope we do that this fall. Tom Persley writes in, he asked, do you see a future where both the women's national team get rid of their coach and GM prior to the Olympics? If so, is her timeline for dismissal different than his? And of course, the the his and hers that he's referring to is Vlako and Donoski, the head coach and of the women's national team currently, and Kate Markgraf, who is the GM of the women's national team program. Now, uh, you know, fair warning for everybody, Kate Markgraf and I went to the same high school. I have grown up watching her play and really am fond of her and and, and just have the utmost respect for her. And she, you know, you know, shout out Detroit country, the yellow jacket. She, she, she's a yellow jacket for life. And she, we're, we're linked in that way. But having said that, it seems like Matt Crocker is going to make moves that will eventually see both of those T people, Vlatko and Kate no longer be a part of the program in their current capacities. I think that happens sooner rather than later. But I'm not quite sure on the timelines. I don't I, I don't know what those timelines are looking like. And if it's anything like the men's program, there's going to be a lot of evaluation. We may see Vlaco in charge in September. We may see Kate still in her post in September. But on the men's side, we had Brian McBride, who was the GM for the men's national team program. And when he left the program in January, his position was never filled and it seems like they're reconsolidating and re reorganizing the sporting department at us soccer and matt crocker may see the general manager position as obsolete 
which is why I say Kate may not be the GM anymore, but she still might stay in another capacity within U.S. soccer. It remains to be seen. I think Vlaco, it, it, I think his days are numbered. Uh, you you can't, you know, it's it's a tough task to say that the bare minimum for him was to win it all, which would have been the third straight time that the U.S. women's national team had won the World Cup, something that no team, men or women, has ever done. It was the bare minimum for him to do that. He fell way short of that. And it again, it was a difficult task for him, but he had to at least get close to it, and he didn't. Um, in several ways, the Olympics we did we 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 didn't uh, get to the uh, gold medal game. We settled for bronze. He had another chance with the World Cup, and he didn't even get to the quarterfinals. Again, the the lowest finish for a U.S. Women's National Team in any major tournament. Flacco's going to take the fall for that. So, um, I think he will eventually be let go. I think Kate is a different question. Again, she might be reassigned or let go. Remains to be seen. But I think Matt Crocker is going to make those moves. And I think those moves may come before the September window opens, which is late September. I'm not sure, though. Um, so we'll have to wait and see what happens with that. So thank you for that question. The next question I have is from my buddy Ryan McCauley, and he asked this question. And I think this is also kind of interesting. Are there players in NWSL you want to see try their hand in Europe? If so, which players and what clubs fit them best? So there were a couple of players that I initially thought of that I think would be interesting to see play in Europe. One is Sophia Smith. And I'm going to be a homer for a second. And I'd say Sophia Smith coming to Real Madrid would be awesome. Uh, Mainly because I think the style of play she would thrive in. And also she's going to be put in a pressure situation where, yeah, Real Madrid does not like losing. They want to win everything. They, everything they possibly can. She's going to be playing in high pressure situations every single week because she will have Real Madrid on her chest and that right there creates a high pressure situation more than more so than almost any other team on the planet. And the NWSL, in my opinion, is still the best league in the world. Now, a lot of people are talking about the, the WSL and all these other leagues because they have Champions League. And it goes to show you what happens when investment by these big clubs into their women's programs, what they can yield. They can yield, you know, better, faster development. But that doesn't make the leagues better. And right now the leagues might be improving, but they are not the NWSL. But having said that, having individual players go into these situations, I think will only help the United States. I think another player that could go back, I should say, to Europe is Elena Cook, who inexplicably did not see the field during the Women's World Cup. Ashley Sanchez also did not see the field for some reason during this World Cup. I think Elena Cook, who started at PSG, you know, maybe go back to PSG or head to Lyon. I I think those would be pretty interesting places for her again as she continues to develop and and try to reclaim her starting job uh, at center back alongside Naomi Gurma. I think those two um, used to be viewed as kind of the center back pairing of the future, and there's still time for that. But I think Elena Cook wants to be able to test herself and really play well every single week against top quality competition. I think she could do that if she goes back to France. Now, I think those are the two off the top of my head that I thought were 
interesting uh, picks and where they could go. But I think in general, I'd love to see more off-season loans. Australia, Sweden, France, the, you know, player, uh, even England. I think, again, having opportunities for players to keep improving themselves and not have a lengthy break, which is kind of the way it works with the NWSL playoffs, is, hey, send those players abroad. Go to, again, go to Australia. We we saw Lynn Williams kind of thrive in Australia. Jessica McDonald relaunched her career in Australia. We've seen players go to Sweden, play in Champions League, go to France, England, play in Champions League, play in League Cups. Those are, again, only going to build, you know, better players and and keep developing them and help them keep and keep sharp because i think the off season that we had this past year which was a little long made it so that some of these players were not sharp and and were not able to get back in the peak sharpness throughout the year and so being in a position where they can continue playing and continue to keep that mental edge as they grow as players is only going to be a good thing ryan also sent another question and he asks, what uncapped players are most likely to make an impact in Paris and or in 2027? And I think it's a little bit you know, far off to think about 2027, but at least for Paris, I mean, personally, I hope it's me official that that she comes onto the scene, that she gets an opportunity, she makes the best of it, and she ends up on this team. A lot of people are high on Jenna Neiswanger, uh, left back from Gotham. And she could possibly factor into the next four years. Giselle Thompson, the younger sister of Alyssa Thompson, she's a defender. She could factor into the next four years. There's a few players that are kind of interesting. Again, those are uncapped players. That's not to mention some of these players that have received caps that could factor in. There's some goalkeepers out there that could factor into the fold again. And it's going to be it's going to be about opportunity, giving these players opportunities. I think on the men's side, we've done a great job at giving guys shots. They may not all get the the initial shot, right? Like, but they are all, I mean, they are getting so many players into that program, getting first caps, capping players left and right, because they want them to get that experience. And then you have a full evaluation of a player pool to see who makes it to the top. And we don't necessarily have that on the women's side because you have certain players that end up getting 200, 300 caps. They play every single game, hurt or not. It doesn't matter whether it's a, a meaningless friendly or the women's cup, you know, women's World Cup final, they're still playing. And so you get these tendencies where you lose a generation because those players didn't get the opportunities that they get on the men's side to play. So I hope whoever the uncapped players are, that they get those opportunities. That's the most important thing over the next year to me. That's all we have for the women's World Cup questions, but I did have a couple of questions on the men's side that I wanted to address from uh, from DT3 on Twitter. He writes in and asks, is there a plan for Mexico to host Leagues Cup in the future? And... As I'm recording, I'm watching some of the League's Cup for the first time right now because, you know, I wasn't watching it over while I was at the World Cup, but it doesn't sound like it. I'd like it to be more balanced in that regard, but it doesn't sound like that's something they want to do. For me personally, I think the League's Cup should be 11 groups of four. I mean, there's 47 teams in this thing. In 2025, when San Diego comes into the league, you'll have 48 teams. 
So it should be groups of four, 11 groups of four and one group of three until San Diego comes in. And they should organize it where they're seeded teams. Of course, there's going to be 12 groups. The top six MLS teams in the Supporter Shield standings and the top six League MX teams, they should be the seed teams and they should get to host their groups. Similar to how they do it in the women's NCAA basketball tournament where you kind of have pods. Then after that, you have your round of 32 top two teams get out of the group and you should have that laid out well ahead of time. So everyone knows who would host those games. Teams would host at home all the way up to the semifinals. And then just like Nations League, you put the semifinals, the final and the third place game at a neutral site that everyone knows about ahead of time. You can sell tickets ahead of time. And that way it becomes a spectacle, becomes an event. But the League's Cup, while it seems like a lot of people have really, really enjoyed it. Again, I haven't been able to watch a lot of it. But it has to be more equitable and teams need to continue to care about it. It was very clear from the outset that there were some teams who were like, hey, I can get three extra weeks of rest if we just chill. And they did not value this tournament. They valued the extra rest. But to make this essentially the second biggest club tournament in CONCACAF, which is what they want to do, you got to make it equitable and you got to make it where the teams want to play well in it. That will include from the Mexico side, having some of them play at home. And just like I mentioned, the women's national team needs to play on a road. MLS teams need to be able to take their talent to Mexico and beat these league MX teams on the road. That's just got to happen for this to be more equitable. And I think there's a way to do it, but it doesn't seem like that's something they want to do at least right now. And again, we don't know if this is going to be every July, August, every year, you know, are they going to stop during Copa America next summer, which is in the United States? Of course, Lionel Messi is going to factor into a lot of that. They don't want him missing any League's Cup games or any league matches. So how are they going to balance this? That is going to be the question. And I think after this season, they still have a lot of work to do to turn this into the premier event that they want it to be. The next question that DT3 asked me is about the U.S. men's national team. And the question is, which U.S. men's national team players who missed the World Cup team is poised to break through over the next year or so? And I think Flair and Balogun is the easy answer. If he can find a team where he can play every week and be the first option at striker, that's not going to happen at Arsenal. There's just too many guys in front of him, and they're just not going to give him that opportunity. If he can go to another team and be that guy, I see him absolutely thriving, just like he did last season when he was on loan. Ricardo Pepe might have something to say about that, too, because... With his move to PSG, he's going to have a chance to get into that starting eleven. He's, you know, he scored a goal, I believe, today or yesterday um, uh, via the penalty spot, and he's going to get those chances to score. And if he can, if he can thrive at PSV, yo, he's going places, and he's going to be on the Copa America team. Chris Richards at Crystal Palace, he was hurt last year. I think he would have made the World Cup team if he wasn't hurt, but now he has uh, hopefully a healthy year at Crystal Palace. I hope he has a terrific year. And if he can, then he, we saw flashes of him playing super well during the Nations League. I think that he becomes one of our center backs of the future, or or at least of the now, and maybe is the starting, one of the starting center backs at the, at Copa America next summer. If we get to that far off, Chris, we still have to qualify. So Chris Richards, hopefully he has a great year because if he does, I think he breaks out and joins his national team and becomes a mainstay in the lineup over the next year. So 
that will do it for our mailbag. Thank you to everyone who submitted questions. We got some great ones, and I definitely appreciate all of you that sent them in. Keep the questions coming, y'all. Follow us on Twitter at USA SoccerCast, and you can submit questions there. You can also send us questions via email to USASoccerCast at gmail.com. Topic suggestions also can be submitted at any time as we move forward. I'd love getting topic suggestions, questions, hypotheticals that I can use to kind of formulate an opinion here on the show. So that will do it for episode 113 of the USA Soccer Cast. Don't forget, we have an affiliate program with Homage, Breaking Tea, Fanatics, and MLS Store. As the European seasons start up, there's plenty of gear you can get. There's also, you can use our affiliate links to get you access to anything on those sites, not just soccer gear. Need some clothes for the kids as they head back to school? College sports starting up? Homage, Fanatics, MLS Store, Breaking Tea, they have got you covered. So head to linktree.com slash USA SoccerCast. You can find all the relevant links to save some money, get the flyest gear, and support the show in the process. And you're going to save some money, especially as some of these sales kick in with back to school coming up. So definitely click those links, go to the stores, and save you some money, support the show in the process. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to y'all again soon. Peace.